Hey, it is so, so good to see everybody here. Let me make one announcement before we jump into uh, week two of 52. And yes, if you weren't here last week, this is week two of a 52-week series. And uh, the, uh, when you go out into the lobby after the service, there are some areas where you can take some next steps around worshiping together, um, serving. And then on the, the uh, community table, there is a sign-up for a class slash small group called Christianity Explored. And uh, what we know in a state like Minnesota is we have a lot of people that come to Crossview who've been away from the church for a while. You're returning to church. Maybe for some of you, you're new to the whole God thing. This is a very, very safe environment for you to go and check out what is this whole Jesus thing all about. It walks through the book of Mark, gets into the Bible, and sort of introduces you to the person of Jesus Christ, or reintroduces you, which a lot of us need, to the person of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to sign up for that. I think it's eight, nine, ten weeks long, but would be a great next step as you are looking at your faith. Last week, we kicked off a series in a Bible called The Wayfinding Bible. Um, I encourage you to get one. If you cannot afford one, let us know. And uh, we actually have somebody that's offered to buy Bibles throughout the year for anybody that doesn't have one and can't afford one. Uh, we, we will get that for you. So um, we told you last week we have two goals in this series as we head into the year. One is very simply, it's at the front of the Wayfinding Bible, and it's that you and I actually read the Bible. That we would open God's word and believe that God will speak to us through his word. That we would, and we said, it can be daunting, right? The idea of reading scripture can, can be overwhelming. And we want to give you the freedom and hopefully the excitement energy to say, I want to open God's word. I want to hear from God. The other way, the other goal we have is that we would live out God's story. Completely connected to first. That as we learn what God's big, beautiful, amazing, redemptive story about, that we would find our place in that story. And that we would begin to live out the story of God. We talked about the two different ways that we read the Bible. I think all Christians, there's two different ways that we should all at different times read the Bible. One is devotionally. That you and I should open God's word and read it and believe that just in that moment, in that act, maybe it's in a small group setting, that just reading it, we will hear from God. That even though this is an ancient text that was originally for ancient people, it's for us today as well. And God wants to say something to you and I through scripture. The other way that we talked about is that we interpret it. When we go to the Bible, we, and this is where I think for many of us it's daunting. Like, uh, I don't understand a lot of it. It's overwhelming. There's some things in the Old Testament that we really need to talk about. And so we said we interpret God's word. And around the idea of interpreting God's word, we talked about four questions. And I'm going to frame Genesis 1 and 2 this morning around those four questions. We won't do this every week, but just so we're starting to get some of these tools in our mind. Our goal, please hear this. Our goal at Crossview is not to tell you how to think. Not to tell you what to think. Not, not to sort of ingrain ideas in your head. Our goal is to give you tools so that you can think for yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what I think these four questions do. The four questions are this, and then we'll walk down through them. The first one is, when we're looking at a text of Scripture, how does it fit in the big story of God? Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the passage that you're looking at in a small group by yourself in church like this, how does it fit in the big overarching, overarching story of God? Second question is this, how does it fit in the book you're reading? So we're going to be in Genesis today. 
One of the questions we'll ask is, how does Genesis 1 and 2 fit into the whole of Genesis, the book? Third question is this, and we often miss this one, and we do a great disservice to ourselves. How would they have heard it? How would they have heard it? Such an important question. We usually jump to, what does it mean to us? But to get there faithfully, we have to ask, how would this text have been heard to the original people that heard it? Then we can go to the final question is, what does it mean for us today? It might have been written to a certain people in a certain time in a certain place, but we also believe with all that we are that God's word is for us today. So what does it mean for us today? Okay, let's jump to the first question. The first question, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, two chapters this morning. The first question is, how does Genesis 1 and 2 fit into the story of God? And this is a pretty easy one. I'm sort of cheating here. We're taking a pretty easy passage for some of these questions. But it fits in the story of God because it's about beginnings. And we all know beginnings matter. If you remember back in grade school, how much time you spent learning the beginnings of our nation. Learning the right documents that really formed who we are. Beginnings to our faith matter as well. What does the beginning of God's story, not just Jesus... But what does the beginning all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 mean for us? It also tells us about God, about God's creation, about humans. It tells us what we are originally designed and called for. In Genesis 1 and 2, the words words for God are used almost 70 times, Yahweh, Elohim, in a combination of the two. It's about God. It's about who God is. Second question is this, and this is very important. How does it fit in the book? It starts off the book. It it makes sense. Like You've got to read the first chapter of a book if you're really going to understand the whole of the book. It starts out the book. It's about creation. It's intimately about who God is, their creator God, this God that creates people, humans in his image. It happens through his breathing into them, this speaking, this hearing. We see that it fits in the book because we see the heart of God with his creation, that he is intimately pleased as he creates. It's good, it's good. There's something there about God and his creation, that this is about the creator God. But we also have to take notice, this is so important. We have to take notice that in Genesis 1 and 2, we have different tellings of the creation account. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a, the first part of verse 4, is one creation account. And then the second half of verse 4 through the end of chapter 2 is the second creation account. And when we jump to the text just asking it from our perspective, we tend to miss much of what is going on here. Most scholars would agree that the first telling, Genesis 1, is actually poetry. If we go to it treating it as a modern science book, we miss the point of the text. It's about a creator God, but it's not a science book. It's poetry. The way words are repeated, the way the Hebrew alphabet sort of lines up as it talks through this is absolutely beautiful poetry. And then chapter 2 is more historical narrative. That it is telling God's people what their creation looked like. Tim Keller says this. He says chapter 1 is poetry. And then the second telling, chapter 2, 4 and on, is really more historical narrative. And the good news about this proclamation, Genesis 1 and 2, is that God and God's creation are bound together in relationship. That's going to be the point of what we see here. 
is the relationship between God and God's creation. So what I want to do is we are going to read down through the second telling of the creation story. We read Genesis 1 all the time, right? In Genesis 2, the second telling is so connected to chapter 3, which is what we're going to look at next week, which is all about the fall. So it's uh, a couple of things before we jump to chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if you're bringing your wayfinding Bible, I can tell you it's okay to write in your Bible. Like mark up your Bible, put notes in, underline some things. Some of the key things in chapter 1 before we jump to chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created. In the beginning God created. Such an important thing for us to understand. God is the creator God. And this is what the point of the passage is about. Go down a little bit later in that chapter 1. It says in verse 26, Then God said, let us, circle, underline the word us. God said, let us make human beings in our own image. This wasn't just God creating. This was the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit creating together. One theologian said creation is like taking a glass and pouring water into it and just continuing to pour until it overflows. Creation is that moment of overflow. The love of the triune God, the love between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's so big that creation had to happen. It had to happen out of that love. Let us make human beings in our own image. It talks about them reigning over, and we'll get into some of that language in chapter 2. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. A really important piece to underline. Then we get chapter 2. Verse 4, starting in the second half, it'll be on the screens. Encourage you to open your Bibles if you have them. Chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Neither wild plants nor grains were growing in the earth, for the Lord had not yet sent rain to water the earth. And there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life, this divine breath that brings forth life. We'll see some New Testament passages that hearken back to that. Into the man's nostrils and man became a living person. We're saying, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. And the Lord God made all sorts of trees growing up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, which we see that referred to at the end of God's story in the book of Revelation. The tree of life is referred to again. And then the tree of knowledge and good and evil. There's two trees. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pashan, flowed around the entire land of a villa where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the uh, Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed around the land of Asher. A fourth branch is called the Euphrates. Now listen to this. Verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. 
to tend and watch over. That language, it's gardening language. For those of you in this room who love gardening or are good at it, I'm not. I kill things if I try to grow them. But for those of you that are good at it, you, you hear that language and you get it. Like the whole idea of planting and cultivating and, and weeding and everything that goes into making something grow. It's a beautiful, beautiful relationship between you and God's creation. That's originally what God's creation was intended to do. It's almost like some people say it's it's that we are called to be co-creators, to join in on God's creation. And keep reading, but the Lord God warned him. And here it is. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, if you eat of its fruit. You will surely die. Now Genesis 1 and 2 often get some very, very poor readings of what they're about. Genesis 1 and 2 is not about how evil came into the earth. In fact, it's interesting. The whole of the Bible doesn't really deal with how evil originated. It deals with how God confronts evil and moves in to redeem and reconcile when evil occurs. What we see here is that God's creation is given freedom. God's creation is given freedom, the freedom to choose. And to this day, we still have that freedom, right? We're given the the freedom to choose between good and evil. And often like the original humans, Adam and Eve, we tend to choose that which is wrong. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one of them. He gave the names to all the livestock, all the birds, the sky, and the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. It's intriguing in this part of the creation story. There's sort of this, oh, wait a minute. Things are really good. It never says things are perfect. Things are really good. And God, God notices something's missing. The human he created, Adam, needs somebody to be there with him. And beyond just God, needs somebody to be in community with. So they bring all the animals by, and at the end of it, God says, still, there is not a suitable helper. Someone like needs to happen. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. When the man slept, the Lord took out of man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to man. And the response, at last. The man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Before I read that, there, there's so many different ways we could talk about this and deal with this. You can talk about God's original intent for marriage, and there's some good teaching in this around that. We can talk about how man and woman were created to live together in community. That they were co-equals created to do what God had for them to do in God's good creation. But here's the important thing to set us up for next week. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were both naked. They were both completely, this is who I am. Everything's out on the table and felt no shame. So with all that said, let's deal with our last two questions. The third question is this. This Genesis 1 and 2, how would they have heard it? Whoever it was written to, how it was heard, a lot of scholars say that that Genesis 1 and 2 were probably written by Moses, 
which means probably around 1500 B.C., and if you know much about Moses, or if you don't, Moses was one of God's leaders for his people in the Old Testament. And he led God's people out of Egyptian captivity into the wilderness for a lot of years. And then ultimately, they ended up in the promised land. Some scholars think it was later on under Babylonian rule. That this was written to God's people in a different time around the 6th century. And they were still under the oppression by somebody other than who they were supposed to be ruled by. And the question is, how would they have heard it? The people to who this was originally written, how would they have heard it? And I think they would have heard a couple of things that are so important. One is, they would have heard about a creator God. They would have heard about God's original intent and what that was all about. But they would have also heard their story. When they read Genesis 1 through 3, they would have read, God intended them to be in the garden, to be home, to be where they were supposed to be. But yet they were living in exile. And in the Old Testament, that's sort of the, the story that goes again and again and again. Here's where you're supposed to be, but yet you choose to be away from where you're intended to be. Here's where you're supposed... And it's our story too, isn't it? We know that we're created for this, but yet we choose this. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Genesis 3 next week. So as we close, what does it mean for us? What is Genesis 1 and 2? At the end of the day, passages that cause so much debate, and I think that's missing the point. What do they mean for us? We started off by last week looking at Luke 24. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's walking down the Emmaus Road with his husband and wife who are distraught because Jesus is dead. Gets to their home, opens the scriptures, and says, the law and the prophets, all of this is about me. I think part of what we need to understand that when we read Genesis 1 and 2 that Jesus is right there in the middle of it. Colossians 1 says this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the kings we can see and the things we can't such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Listen to this. Everything was created through him and for him. Genesis 1. Everything was created through him and for him. John 1. In the beginning, the word, Jesus, already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything was created and his life brought light to everyone. We see Jesus in the middle of this. This is the triune. It's so important to understand. Well, there's a couple of other things that we take away when we ask the question, what does this mean for us? One is back to chapter one, that we are created in the image of God. The Greek word for image of God is icon. So, you know, when you open your computer, and if you have, in, in the Genesis 1 and 2, the computers they had had an apple on the backside. It's the brand of computers God intended for all of us to have. And, uh, but if you open your computer, and the little, the little icons on there, they are what? They're meant to open up to something bigger. You double click, and it opens it up to an actual program. It's a window into something else. That's what it means to be image bearers. You and I were meant, were made 
so that as people see us, how we live, how we relate, everything about us, they get a window into who God is. It's actually what religious icons are meant to be. In Eastern Orthodoxy, religious icons are not meant, it's not an idol meant to be worshipped. It's meant to give people an image into the divine, into something greater. And that's what we're created to be. We are meant to be image bearers, to point people so people see us, they see, they get a lens into who God is. And we'll talk about that more next week when we get uh, into chapter 3 around the fall. A couple of other important things that we are invited to be, to care for, that language, that guarding language, the idea that we're called to be with God co-creators, to bring good, to see good all around us. We also see in these chapters that we're meant to live in community. Even for the biggest introverts among us, we need community, right? We need community. We need each other. We need intimacy of relationship to become all that God created us to be. And I want to close with a verse that, that uh, we'll probably see plastered in many end zones today. John 3.16 says this. For this is how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. Come back to that in a second. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We get that that is the core message of the Christian faith. That God enters into humanity and lives and dies for our sins and rises again so that we can have life. But sometimes we miss the first line of John 3.16. For this is how God loved, the Greek word is, the cosmos. Not just humans, but God loves his creation. In the last few decades, there has been some misunderstandings of how God sees his creation. And people get this idea that we just use up creation, abuse it, burn it, whatever. It doesn't matter. And that's not the lens of God towards his creation. Towards you or to the entirety of God's creation. And I think it's important for us as we walk away from this text to ask the question, if we are people living in this whole story of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and we're called to care for and tend to God's garden, God's creation, how do you see God's creation? Those images that we're playing in This Is My Father's World, sometimes we get so, so caught up with what is broken and wrong that we don't see the good because I think we need to see the good so that our eyes can turn towards what is broken and wrong and we can actually move towards it in the same way that God did. From beginning to end, the narrative of Scripture is God's good creation. God still loves. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are meant to have the same posture. Let's pray. God, I pray that you um, you would not only give us eyes to see what is around us, God, but I pray, Lord, as we repent of the ways in which we sin and turn from you, the ways in which we can abuse your creation, and as we put faith and trust in you, some of us for the first time, some of us for 
the thousandth time. God, as we again and again trust you that we would be able to, by grace, have your eyes for the world around us and see the creator God the way that you look down. And then God, give us the will to join in with what you want us to do, what you have us to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray.